So it was great to hear from Ricky last week, wasn't it? Um, he expertly explained the reconciliation that is ours uh, through the gospel, helping us understand what it was like for the brothers to be reconciled to Joseph. And he pointed us to the ways that uh, The story of Joseph is woven into the bigger story of the Old Testament and the the bigger story still, uh, the gospel. So if you weren't here, uh, let me remind you that all of the sermons, uh, with a few exceptions, from the Genesis series are available on the website. Um, They're available uh, on on CD as well, upon request. Uh, We stopped doing cassettes just recently. Uh, And again, we apologize for any of the internet issues uh, that you might have here in the building. It's been driving us crazy too. Uh, and so we apologize for the, the check-in process reverting a little bit. Um, we, we clearly blame CenturyLink. Uh, but thank you for your patience as we work through these hiccups. Um, wasn't it good to have the kids help lead in worship this morning? Uh, and thankfully the song that they sang is foundational to the text for this morning. Um, Because we are not home yet. This is not where you belong. No matter how comfortable you are, no matter how many generations of your family have lived here, uh, you will not always be here. Things are not as they were intended to be. This is not all that there is. And that's that's good news. Uh, I would be okay with some amens right there, but whatever. Um, This morning, we have a pretty big chunk of text. Uh, although not quite as much as Ricky had last week uh, covering Joseph's brother's second trip down to Egypt. We're going to jump in uh, right after the brothers have arrived home from that trip and they've told Jacob that Joseph is actually alive. And not just alive, because that would have been more than enough by itself for Jacob, but he is functionally the leader of Egypt, the whole country, and he wants the whole family to come and live with him. Can, can you even begin to comprehend receiving news like that? So Jacob obviously finds this pretty hard to believe. Uh, but he resolves to go to see uh, if it's true. He trusts that it's true. So that's where we come in with Genesis 46 and 47. And I titled this, The God Who Supports the Exile. So we're going to read just a short section together. Um, then I'll let you be seated again, and I'll, I'll share some certain parts of the text as we examine them in light of the gospel. Uh, but would you stand with me as we read this first section together? From Genesis 46, 1 through 7, and then 29 through 30. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel and visions of the night, and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba, The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him. Then Joseph prepared his chariot, and he went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. 
he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. If you'd be seated. I'm serious. Once Brad gets back from sabbatical, me and Sean are going to convince him to start doing that uh, as we read the text together so you'll know what's coming. Uh, The whole thanks be to God thing. Uh, If you'd recall the three parts of Joseph's saga, though, we have hammered this in uh, through the past several weeks. The three parts of Joseph's saga. The fact that it points us to God, it points to Jesus, and it points to ourselves. So this morning, though, we're going to work through this a little out of order uh, this time. Because this part of Joseph's saga, the journey of Jacob, uh, and the reunion of father and son that we just read, this points us to ourselves in a very interesting way. So think about this. Imagine living in Bowie's Creek your whole life. For some of us, that's not hard to imagine, but bear with me. Uh, Then imagine from this place in Bowie's Creek being told by God himself, however you want to imagine it. It's a billboard, a dream, a text, an audible voice in your ear, whatever. Uh, God says to move to a strange place. Uh, For the purposes of this illustration, let's say Los Angeles. Uh, A foreign land of strange people where there's no sweet tea and there's no barbecue. But before you set out, you're wrestling. You're wrestling because your heart is always longing for Bowie's Creek. And you go because God said so. But every day, something reminds you that you're not quite home. So we can identify with that, right? That's actually uh, an adaptation of the journey of Rhett McLaughlin, uh, used without permission. Uh, At least we hope that Bowie's Creek is still home for them, right? Uh, We all have pretty strong ideas about what it means to be home, especially those of us who have lived in rural parts of North Carolina. Uh, Actually, who am I kidding? Have you ever met anybody from New Jersey or New York? They still think about it as home, even once they've moved to Cary. I mean, it's, it's home for them. And do you know anybody from Texas? I mean, no comment necessary, right? Like, we have ideas of what it means to be home. And so this text, Joseph's saga and Jacob's journey, here in our text, it, it points us to our ideas of what it means to be home, and it challenges us to trust wherever God leads us for however long he leads us there. But this part of Joseph's saga points us to God, uh, perhaps in more significant ways. More specifically, it shows us how God interacts with us, his people. So let's back up just a little bit. Uh, Let's consider the original audience for the book of Genesis. The first people that had the privilege of hearing these words from God in this form. If you remember, it was for those who were in a form of exile. They were wandering for 40 years, for two plus generations, maybe wondering, how did we get here? Why aren't we home yet? And then the very next audience, after the Assyrian and Babylonian conquests of the divided kingdom of Israel, 
They were in a diaspora. They were scattered. There was an exile. And a lot of them were probably asking the same question. How did it come to this? What is happening here? Why aren't we home? So this idea of exile is very, very key for understanding the people of God. So maybe you've heard this word before. Maybe you have no idea what to do with such a strange word. So we're going to look at three ways that exile is relevant to our context and then plug back into the Genesis text and make the connections. So firstly, exile in the Old Testament. So the original audience for the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament that I just mentioned, this original audience, they were in a kind of exile. They were wandering for 40 long years in the wilderness. But they were encouraged by this story, the facts of this text, like the fact that they could consider the the 400 years prior that they were in Egypt, that was a kind of exile. They weren't home yet. Or the fact that Jacob, or Israel, the individual, was supported and sustained through his whole exile down into Egypt. Israel, the people, needed to hear that they would be supported and sustained by their God. So more properly, though, uh, in the Old Testament, we see two specific times of exile. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 17, maybe you haven't read through First or Second Kings in a while, but in 2 Kings, uh, basically, it gets really messy throughout Kings and Chronicles. Right after Solomon, things split. Uh, the family splits, and it becomes a very literal, physical split for the whole kingdom of Israel. Uh, instead, it is two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, two brothers, basically, that can't reconcile for generations, many, many generations. So uh, in Second Kings, after several generations of this, and in the 700s, the Assyrian Empire is starting to kind of press in on Israel, and eventually they're like, all right, we're going to sweep through and kind of take this thing. So the Assyrians sweep in, they conquer the northern kingdom, and they take some of the, the Jewish people with them back to wherever they want to in the Assyrian Empire. Now they're part of the empire, we're going to do what we want. They're in exile, they're taken away from their home. But then we see this again, and perhaps worse, in the southern kingdom. In 587, the, the Babylonian Empire they, they pretty much absorb the Assyrians. The Babylonians then come in and they say, we're going to take the southern kingdom. And they take people, maybe you remember in Daniel, most specifically. Uh, Daniel and some of these young men who are strong and wise, uh, the Babylonians snatch them up, take them back to Babylon. They bring them to exile. They're not home anymore. And then we see in Psalm 137 uh, a really interesting uh, refrain the psalmist says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we, we wept when we remembered home. We think about all the prophets. So basically, uh, that whole chunk of the Old Testament, all those prophets are speaking to either before, during, or after. Uh, not quite after, but all these exilic times in the Old Testament. All the prophets are dealing with this idea that they're not home yet, but you're going to be. God is at work even in the midst of exile. So the audience needed to hear of Jacob's support on his journey toward exile way back here in Genesis. But this exile in the Old Testament, this diaspora, this scattering of God's people, what it did was it embedded deeply in them 
the longing for the Messiah, the one who would return and take them home, who would defeat the enemy once and for all and make all things right. But then we see in the New Testament a picture of exile. It's not quite the same, but we can't leave the idea behind. We take it with us into the New Testament. and It takes a new shape for Christ and all those afterwards. So look at, uh, if you have your Bible with you, look at uh, Hebrews eleven, thirteen through 16. This, this section frames Abraham and all those following God by faith as exiles on earth. So if you're tracking with me chronologically speaking, those two things that happened in Kings and afterwards, that's way after Abraham. But here the New Testament is saying Abraham and all of those who love God by faith are exiles. And then First Peter, he takes it even further. Uh, Peter the Apostle, in writing his letters, in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, he describes us as exiles. And this is both a descriptive thing and a prescriptive thing. He's saying, uh, since we are exiles, we should behave like sojourners or exiles. And in fact, uh, one of my favorite Petra songs. Any Petra fans? I have a Petra cassette in my office. Uh, there's a haunting melody uh, by the original vocalist, Greg X. Voles. What a great name. Uh, the line is, we are strangers. We are aliens. We are not of this world. And that's pulled right from this translation of First Peter. So we'll return to this understanding of exile But there's another perspective of the word that is relevant to our Genesis text and to us. Because many of us encounter exile in our own lives. It's more than just a concept in the Old Testament or a concept in the New Testament. This is a personal, sometimes felt thing. Many of us experience loneliness. That's a kind of exile. Or the pain of separation from loved ones. Or the effects of divorce. Or in this culture, joblessness. Or just plain wandering. All of these are kinds of exile that we wrestle with. All of us can resonate with one of these ways. that We're forced to realize the fact that we're not home yet. Maybe it's true that this isn't quite where we belong. So now we're going to go back to our text. And we'll see how God is a God who supports the exile. He shows himself faithful. And God supports the exile through three very powerful means. And I'm adapting these three ideas from a sermon that Sam Brown, uh, from our sister church, Grace Presbyterian in Fuquay, he preached this during their Genesis series last year. I'm grateful for uh, his hard work that he put into these, and I'm adapting them a little bit. God supports the exile. He supports you and me in our exile. He supported all through the Old Testament. He supported all through the New Testament through these three ways, through the covenant promises, through the covenant people, and through the covenant rescuer. So let's walk through our text, and we'll see this play out. So turn in your Bibles to chapter 46 of Genesis. Uh, If you're not already there, uh, and let's look at it together. I need to grab 
or iPad. Uh, if you haven't brought a Bible this morning, if you don't have a smartphone, uh, I am 80% sure that the person beside you will share with you. Uh, I say that because one out of five people is a selfish Bible reader, so that's why I only say 80%. But seriously, if you don't have a Bible, uh, please ask me or anybody that you've seen on stage. Uh, we would love to give you one. Um, or if you're like most of us who have three or more at home, what better place to bring it? So as we look at chapter 46, God himself says, go, and I will bring you back. God himself speaks audibly to Jacob and says, go, and I will bring you back. What a powerful promise. God is speaking so clearly to Jacob. So what a grace that the same God, the same God who promised to Jacob, and fulfilled that promise is the God who promises you that nothing can separate you from the love of God that you have in Christ Jesus. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Same God, many promises, same promise-keeping strength. An interesting parallel came up as I was studying the text. Um, when, and this is a pop quiz, so feel free to answer this, uh, when was the last time, and I'll even make it easier, in Genesis, that we saw a whole family called together to go into a place where they would then be preserved? Everybody but Sean can answer this. Fair game. Whole family goes into something to be preserved and protected. Yes, in the ark. The same kind of language is actually used here with regard to Egypt. So we can see that the that Egypt is an ark saving God's people from a dry famine as opposed to floodwaters, but saving nonetheless and pointing us to the better ark who will save his people once and for all. And that ark is the saving work of Jesus, the Messiah. So let's look at this promise. Uh, This is the first picture of how God supports the exile, uh, which Jacob is now becoming. As he leaves his home for the long journey to Egypt. And honestly, when we're thinking about promises, this shouldn't have been a surprise to Jacob or to anybody who was paying attention. And remember God's promise to Abraham. So look with me back at Genesis 15, 13 through 14. Genesis 15, 13 through 14. Then the Lord Yahweh said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So isn't that encouraging? I mean, God was pretty explicit right here. Surely nobody would have anticipated exactly how this was going to play out. But here we are enacting the first part of this promise. So we can have a certain hope that the second part of the promise is going to happen. God uses his covenant promises to his people to support and sustain them 
through exile. So Jacob, whenever he decided to finally remember this promise to Abraham, he would have been encouraged immeasurably, uh, as if the promise directly from God hadn't been enough. So this is indeed a powerful promise to Jacob in our passage this morning. I will go with you. I will bring you out. The covenant promises of God support his people through their exile. Throughout the exile of the Old Testament and all its forms, God's people remembered the promised Messiah. And it sustained them through that long and dark time. They knew that somehow God was with them and God would bring them back. Through the exile of the New Testament, we have all the promises of God articulated by Jesus and the apostles. They sustained his people. The covenant established through Jesus' sacrifice, it actually comes with promises that are fulfilled in the most powerful means imaginable. God himself. In John 14, Jesus tells us of the promised helper, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity who dwells in us. So this covenant promise sustained all of the church through history. And this same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to you and to all who believe, confess, and repent. So God's covenant promises sustain the people of God through their exile, whatever that might be for them. We look back at chapter 46. Uh, We encounter a section that talks about the whole family. And as you look at that, you're probably grateful that I didn't read through the whole thing as we were standing together. Um, But as you get to to the end of that, it is no coincidence that the number 70, a number reflecting completion throughout its use in the Bible, is associated with the family that travels with Jacob to Egypt. And indeed, it's Jacob's family or the covenant people They're the second way that God sustains and supports the exile. So I don't know what your family vacations look like. Um, I could unpack the trauma from some of mine growing up. uh, Or I could talk about uh, the ways that our marriage is strengthened by our adventures together. Uh, But this, this is way more than that. The only time that I think that we as a church family have maybe seen a glimpse of this is when somebody in the church uh, is moving. Typically, that person is then swamped with help, uh, more than they need, uh, to get everything done. People who are sacrificing time and energy uh, to get this thing happening. They help them with that move. But this that Jacob is experiencing, this, is, this physical support, is only the tip of the iceberg for the blessing of God's covenant people to sustain us. I think the most mind-blowing example uh, I'll have to save for tonight, actually. Uh, If you are connected to us on the city or on Facebook, then you've been able to see some of uh, what Sean and Melissa and Milo experienced in their surprise extended visit to Italy. Uh, But join us tonight at our potluck meal uh, as the Italy team share these experiences, as the TVR kids share their experiences. And I'm pretty sure that Sean will give us a summarized version of how God supported and sustained them when they were not home by his covenant people, the church. So for Jacob, in this text, his entire family is going with him. Uh, In some cases, they're probably literally carrying him in trying times of the journey. 
And this is a spiritual reality for us now. Because the whole family is going here in the text. For us, the whole church, all of God's covenant people, we are sojourning together. None of us are home yet, right? As Hebrews and 1 Peter just told us, if you think about it, the whole extended family of God is traveling with you as we wait for Jesus to bring us home. So what a grace that is to have one's family in its entirety traveling with you, making the journey for support. You should continue to look at the Genesis 46 text, uh, those verses that we read at the end of our time. Uh, when Joseph and Jacob are reunited, there are very few more beautiful pictures of a reunion between father and son uh, than when they see each other. I mean, I don't even have to unpack that. I don't have to preach that. It preaches itself. And it's a good southern phrase, too. He hugged his neck and cried for a good while. It's the power of the covenant people supporting each other. An interesting scene plays out when we look at the very end, though, of chapter 46. Um, as you look through that, you may wonder, like, why shepherds? And Joseph suggests that, you know, they, they position themselves as shepherds uh, when they meet before Pharaoh. So why does Joseph set it up that way? Why does he uh, preface this meeting with Pharaoh in this way? For one thing, Joseph knew that when they get to Egypt, that living in cities in close proximity would probably not be the best situation for the Hebrew people uh, in their infancy here and, and the Egyptians. Uh, but more than that, God knew that the tendencies of his people, he wanted them to be separate. This is the text from Deuteronomy that Thomas read this morning, reminded them. He wanted them to be separate, uh, even when in another country. So rather than putting themselves in proximity to pagan worship in the cities, like Lot was prone to do, if you remember him, the people had their own space in the land of Goshen, actually called the best land, which is pretty crazy, uh, where they could be separate from the Egyptians while still in Egypt. So God clearly has a plan to preserve his people and bring forth the Messiah. Even in a little practical thing like this, God is at work. And there's another interesting scene that we find here in the beginning of chapter 47. So as you look at that, Jacob uh, He's the head of the family through which God is going to bless the whole earth. If you remember that promise to Abraham that's being carried on. And so Jacob comes into Pharaoh's presence and he blesses him. And not just once, but twice. So we've, we've seen Jacob in some situations where he shows a distinct lack of maturity or a lack of wisdom. And he, he, he hints at that actually too when he answers to Pharaoh and says that the days of his life have been few and evil. But the patriarch now is confident in what God has just promised him. And he gives us a glimpse of how God intends to use his people in the world. So Jacob's example shows us how to act in the world. Here's what I mean. Jacob is in exile. He's sojourning in a foreign land. He is the inheritor of a powerful promise of the covenant. So also, we are exiles. We're sojourning in this land. And we have the gospel in everything we need for life. More than we could ever ask for. 
in Christ. So we are in a position to speak blessings and be a blessing to everybody that we meet because of the gospel. Not because of us, not because of anything that is naturally in you, but because of what we have in Jesus that is unending and largely untapped by his people. We can be a blessing. We can freely forgive because Christ has so greatly loved us. We can love people and actually mean it because Christ has so greatly forgiven us. We can forgive people. We can give freely and be a blessing. Even knowing that Pharaoh and Pharaoh's offspring have something in store that's not quite a blessing. Even when we encounter people that are hostile to us and don't want to hear if we mention the name of Jesus, we can still bless them. As we keep reading through this text, uh, we get to the middle portion of chapter 47. We encounter Joseph managing the prophesied famine so well that through his management, the entire country of Egypt survives. And not just that, this is mind-blowing, the, the people are willing to sell all their land to him, and then they're willing to give of their service, like become slaves practically, and they still like him. I can't conceive of that happening in our context with any governmental ruler, uh, but we see that Joseph has the blessing of God. When we come to the end of that text, In chapter 47, Jacob asks Joseph to take his body back to his home to be buried. And that is the answer to God's promise. That Joseph would be there when Jacob died. And ultimately, Jacob would be brought back home. But here in this translation from the ESV, it says that Jacob bows his head over his bed. And so you get the feeling that maybe he's on his deathbed or something like that. Uh, this word, which he actually kind of is, but this word for bed is actually the same Hebrew consonants as the word for staff. Now, why am I getting this technical? Because only the vowels are changed here. Okay, this is an illustration for us to remember that the best way to interpret Scripture is to use Scripture. So we find a better picture of what's happening here in Hebrews chapter 11. We were just there a bit earlier And so look here, Jacob actually bows his head in worship over the head of his staff. So the staff that he's presumably had with him since he wrestled with God and had his hip put out of joint. The staff that he may have had laying beside him as he made that pot of porridge for Esau. As he holds the staff and he remembers God's answered, fulfilled promises And he worships God in response to that. He then professes and pronounces blessings out of that worship. And we'll see those next week. So in case you were wondering, yes, we are ending our series in Genesis next week. Uh, For some of us, that's a sad thing. For some of us, that is a cause for rejoicing. But seeing that Jacob is at the end of his life, uh, that's a key factor in things winding down. But as I've said, it's through Jacob's experience in this passage that we see God's support, his unending support for the exile. At the beginning of this story, we could have said, here Jacob is, living where he's supposed to, in the promised land. 
And now God is saying, move to this foreign place where you'll be a sojourner and an exile from your true home. So if God tells you something like this, praise him, that he will also support and sustain. God himself said to Jacob, I will be with you and I will bring you back. That's a promise you can clearly count on. And in fact, you can count on every covenant promise that God makes to his covenant people. Remember the central point of the three things that Joseph's story points us to? Uh, It points to Jesus. In fact, all of Genesis points to Jesus. And this has been one of those main thrusts of our entire sermon series on, on gospel origins. Because think about it, even if somebody's unfamiliar with the Bible or unfamiliar with Christianity, they probably still know that Genesis is a place to look uh, for the origins of the world. But more specifically than that, we have seen that God begins telling his story and the story of his people from Genesis through the whole Bible. The good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are foreshadowed throughout Genesis which is why we've called it gospel or good news origins. Just as God uses covenant promises and the covenant people to support the exile, God also uses the covenant rescuer to save and to sustain the exile. So you could say that Joseph's saga points to God, the promises of God, promises he makes and keeps. It points to ourselves, the covenant people, of God, and it points to Jesus, the covenant rescuer. In this story, in these two chapters, it's, it's Joseph. He serves as a pretty pale comparison, though. He's a pale picture of the covenant rescuer to come. And when I say pale in comparison, I am taking into account that Joseph saves his entire family He gives them the best land in Egypt. He then saves the entire country. And in all of that, he's preparing the way for the Messiah. As Ricky pointed out last week, he's preparing the way for the people of God to grow from 70 to hundreds to thousands. And yet, that rescue doesn't compare. It doesn't shine like Jesus. Because the covenant rescuer, Joseph, points us to Jesus, the better covenant rescuer. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were the lost exile, he reconciled us to God. And now we're a different kind of exile. Now we know that we have a home that he's preparing for us. Because he said, if I, if I go to prepare a place for you, have I not told you this? And I go to prepare a place so that where I am, you may also be. There is a home for us that we're not in yet. In fact, the rescuer, Jesus, he's the greatest promise of God. I mean, he's the means by which God keeps every single promise that he makes. So remember 2 Corinthians 1.20? I mentioned this last week, or two weeks ago. All of the promises of God find their completion, they find their yes in him, in Jesus. So if you've had any hesitation about trusting God through whatever exile looks like in your life, if you've had any hesitation about trusting the God who sustains the exile through loneliness, 
through separation, through joblessness, through your wandering. Remember God's promises. He is faithful and true to his word. Remember God's people. You're sitting with some of them. You might live with some of them. Uh, We're all here to walk with you in this shared exile that we're all on until Christ returns. And remember the covenant rescuer, Jesus. He has done what we could never do on our behalf when he died in our place. All so that one day you might be able to arrive at your true home with the triune God. So may your hearts echo this prayer that the kids sang this morning. All I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong. Take this world and give me Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we are grateful for the opportunity to come and to sit together, even on exile, even as strangers. But God, help us to live as those who are not of this world, even as we're in it. Help us to navigate that tension of living here and longing for our place with you. And God, help us to trust your promises. Help us to trust your word that explains your promises. Help us to trust your people who sustain us and support us. And God, help us to trust the rescuer. We cannot thank you enough for the ways that you support and sustain the exile, each of us. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.